John Stark was a badass, a real deal American hero, as tough and capable a frontier partisan as the forests and lakes and streams of northern New England ever produced. He served as second in command of Rogers Rangers in the French and Indian War, and then 20 years later led a frontier-bred contingent of New Hampshire militia to Boston where they hammered the British Army with devastating volleys of accurate musket fire in the Battle of Bunker Hill. And most importantly, he beat a German contingent of the British Army in a stand-up fight at Bennington in what's now Vermont in the summer of 1777, setting up the key American victory at Saratoga. The Battle of Saratoga and the American victory there led directly to French intervention in the American Revolution and, and made American independence possible. So you could say that John Stark played a truly critical role in American independence, although he's not very well remembered today. His gritty determination and his tactical acumen were honed in the wilderness of northern New England, and they were on display early when he was captured by Abenaki warriors in the spring of 1752 while on a hunting, fishing, and trapping expedition up the Merrimack River to the remote Baker River in the White Mountains. This was rugged wilderness territory and really a no-man's land between the New England settlements and the Abenaki towns to the north in Canada. Since the 1690s, the region had been crisscrossed by raiding parties for years. Abenaki and Canadian French raiders or New England rangers and scalp bounty hunters in a series of virtually perpetual conflicts between the English and the French. In this March of 1752, there was a, a time of peace, or maybe it's better to refer to it as a, a cold war. The English and the French were not currently at war, but the young men who canoed up the Merrimack to set their traps on the Baker were trespassing on land claimed by the Abenaki, and there were no fiercer opponents to the settlers of the New England frontier. The four-man party consisted of four young, vigorous frontiersmen, 23-year-old John Stark, his brother William, and their friends Amos Eastman and David Stinson. As Stark's grandson would later describe them, they were accustomed to dwell in forest camps at great distances from home, and thus became inured to hardships and were early taught lessons of self-dependence. They were often, in the pursuit of their vocation, brought in contact with the native savages from whom they obtained a knowledge of their language and customs and became excellent marksmen. The four hunters and trappers made an outstanding haul, reportedly taking 560 English pounds worth of furs and skins. That would calculate out to about $120,000 in today's money, which is not bad for a month's worth of very hard work. But their presence had not gone unnoticed. Their lean-to camp with its cooking and warming fire is probably what betrayed them. And they found moccasin tracks in the forest around them. So on April 28th, they decided they better pull their traps and head down the river. 
but the decision came too late. John Stark was detailed to hit their sets and fetch in the valuable steel traps. So he went up the the river, and as he bent to pull one out of the water, he heard what he described later as a hissing sound as Abenaki warriors stepped out of the brush and surrounded him. There were ten Abenaki, led by a man named Francis Titigaw. The Abenaki at this time were largely Catholic and had developed a culture that salted their traditional ways of life with a lot of French elements, including names. And they were also multi-ethnic. Many Abenaki carried European blood, either of Frenchmen or of English captives who had been taken over decades of warfare. Stark biographers Richard and John Polhemus note that the Abenaki may have been a hunting party themselves who simply came upon the New Englanders the New Englanders in the woods. The area was not far from a favorite Abenaki hunting ground called the Cowas Intervals, and Cowas meaning a place of the pine trees. The Indians demanded that Stark take them to his companions. Of course, he led them up the stream in the opposite direction. Unfortunately, his partners grew worried when he didn't return, and thinking he may have gotten lost, they fired their muskets to signal him. And, of course, the Indian party heard those muskets and and where they were coming from, and, and so the jig was up for Stark's deception. But the Abenaki couldn't close in on the New Englanders' camp because it was getting dark, so they holed up for the night. The Abenaki caught up with Stark's comrades at dawn just as they were heading out from their camp. Amos Eastman was walking along the bank, and David Stinson and William Stark were in the canoe headed downstream. The Abenaki leveled their muskets at the canoe, and John Stark threw out his arm and flung their barrels up and shouted out a warning but some of the Indians were able to fire, and they hit Stinson, who pitched out of the canoe and into the water, and William paddled frantically away, uh, later discovering that there were, were holes from musket balls in his canoe paddle. The Abenaki captured Eastman on the bank, and they pummeled John Stark for causing them trouble. They hauled Stinson's body out of the water and sliced off his scalp and and stripped him and left his carcass there in the water. Eastman and John Stark were now captives. William made it to the town of Rumford where he reported the ambush and gathered a rescue party. And that rescue party returned up the river and found Stinson's corpse. But it was clear that the Abenaki were long gone with Amos and John with them. Chittigaw took his captives 150 miles through the wilderness to the village of St. Francis, not far from the St. Lawrence River, sort of between Montreal and Quebec, closer to Quebec. St. Francis was a polyglot village of refugees from other towns that had either been attacked or were too vulnerable to sustain over more than half a century of warfare. It was also a headquarters and a jumping-off point for raids into New England, most notably the infamous Deerfield Raid, which nearly destroyed that uh, town in Massachusetts in 1704. Stark and Eastman 
certainly knew the dread reputation of the place as they were led up the bluffs to the village, where they were confronted with parallel lines of a gauntlet. Running the gauntlet was a common rite of passage demanded of captives in, from the eastern woodlands peoples. It was a means of, of gauging the prisoner's nature and a means of exacting a little payback since virtually everyone in any given village or town had suffered losses at the hands of the English. In a gauntlet, prisoners were made to run between the two parallel lines of men and women who were armed with sticks and clubs and beat them as they ran. Sometimes the blows were really just symbolic taps. Sometimes prisoners were subjected to real beatings. And sometimes prisoners were killed. It just depended on the mood of the villagers at the time the captives arrived. In a memoir taken down by his grandson Caleb, John Stark recalled the way the gauntlet went down when the party, led by Titigaw, returned to St. Francis. The young warriors of the tribe arranged themselves in two lines, each armed with a rod or club to strike the captive as he passed them, singing some ditty, which had been taught him for the occasion, and bearing in his hands a pole six or eight feet long with a skin of some bird or animal attached to one end of it. Eastman advanced first, singing words which meant, I'll beat all your young men. The latter, considering themselves insulted, beat him so severely with their rods that he fell exhausted as soon as he had passed the lines. Stark followed, singing the words, I'll kiss all your women, his pole being ornamented with a loon skin. After receiving a blow or two, he turned his pole right and left, dealing a blow at each turn, and made his way without much injury, his enemies making way for him to avoid the sweeping blows dealt by his pole. So the way Stark conducted himself in the gauntlet impressed the elders of the village, and it kind of set a pattern for the way he would act throughout his brief captivity, which only lasted a few months. As was true throughout his life, John Stark just took no shit. Prisoners of the Abenaki could meet a variety of different fates. They could be killed. They could be sold to the French. They could be kept as slaves. Or they could be adopted into a family to replace someone lost in, in war or to disease. Stark was put to work hoeing corn, which he deliberately botched. He hoed out the corn and left the weeds. Then uh, he got fed up with it and threw his hoe into the river and told his captors that this was the work of women and he wasn't going to do it. Now, you would think that that would cause all kinds of trouble, but instead of provoking his captors, Stark's pride and his defiance pleased the Abenaki, who started calling him young chief and treated him as one of their own. His captivity was not to last long. Remember that this is, is a time of peace. England and France are, are not at war, and although there are plenty of tensions between the Abenaki and the New England settlers, they're really at peace too and have actually even established some trading relationships. So there was communication between St. Francis and the English colonies, and a couple of officials from Massachusetts showed up to ransom or redeem captives which was Massachusetts Colony's policy. They didn't find 
any Massachusetts captives, so they ransomed Eastman and Stark instead. The Abenaki escorted the captives and their redeemers to Albany in New York, where they sold their confiscated furs to Albany fur merchants. Stark never did like Albany merchants after that. Stark and Eastman returned home, none the worse for wear from their ordeal, and with a surprisingly positive view of their captors. Stark recalled later that he had experienced more genuine kindness from the savages of St. Francis than he ever knew prisoners of war to receive from more civilized nations. The peace didn't last. The French and Indian War broke out just two years later, and John Stark would be in the thick of it, serving with another friend of his youth, a man named Robert Rogers. And Stark would, in fact, become one of Rogers' most reliable officers. He would not, however, take part in the most famous exploit of Rogers' Rangers, which was a 1759 raid on St. Francis. Stark would not attack the home of the Indians who had treated him so well in his captivity. As always the case in frontier partisan history, relationships across frontiers were very complicated. As noted, John Stark would go on to turn in some important service in the American Revolution. In his old age, he was too ill to attend a reunion at the site of the Battle of Bennington, so he sent a letter that contained one line that continues to stir the blood of American patriots to this day. Stark said, Live free or die. Death is not the worst of evils. I'd like to thank the patrons who have signed on with our brigade here that make the Frontier Partisans podcast and the blog possible. That's Cody Rush, Clint Richards, David Costello, Jeremy Popple, Malcolm Brooks, John Buchanan, John Sweet, Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Robert Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfager. Our brigade is growing, and, uh, and that's fantastic. I really do appreciate the, uh, the folks who are willing to put down a few plues to keep the campfire burning. Tales of the Rangers will continue. This is a, a podcast series of indefinite length that uh, is growing out of my research for what will be a future book titled Spirited for That Work, um, more colloquially known as The Ranger Project. We're going to leave New England, where we've been uh, trekking for, for some time, in the next podcast and venture west of the Mississippi to the uh, Republic of Texas in 
1844 for a really remarkable tale of survival of a Texas Ranger badly wounded in a scrap with the Comanche. Um, there are so many wonderful tales of survival in this, uh, this one, which involves uh, a young man named Rufus Berry, is one of the more remarkable. So it uh, won't be too long before I have that podcast up, and uh, we'll see you down the trail.